Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good morning, Dharma friends. Happy Sunday to all of us. I wanted to begin this talk with a little bit of uh, just prefatory announcement um, by way of context for this talk and some of the similar talks to come. Uh, our guiding teachers, uh, the two Roshis plus Hokuto Osho, have recently uh, formalized a Dharma teacher training program and they invited certain uh, relatively longtime practitioners to join this program. And so uh, Muken and I were both invited, and Muken has recently re-arrived at Shoboji. So in the coming months, uh, he and I both are anticipating offering a Dharma talk on a semi-regular basis, uh, maybe each, maybe both of us each month, or maybe we'll do every other month a little bit. Um, but so in the next phase of our practice, it will be important to practice offering good talks. And uh, it is my, my hope uh, and my expectation that this will be also helpful for the Shoboji Sangha as a whole. So. I'm excited about it, and I hope we don't cause too much trouble. Um, with that said, let us, let us investigate this great matter together. And please observe. So what are we doing here? I want to say something about sensitivity. So do you feel a shift in the atmosphere of the space as these little things change? Do you feel some kind of a, an intuitive difference between and, okay. I remember once upon a time, Edo Roshi was trying to make a point during morning meeting and took the incense burner out of the tokonoma and did this offering incense. And then just turning everything askew. So I hope he doesn't mind that I'm copying him a little bit. So part of our part of our Zen training that I want to underline a little bit today is the is the cultivation of this sensitivity that we become more sensitive, more uh, 
intuitively aware, intuitively perceptive to the subtle distinctions and the nuances in each situation that confronts us. But let's start from a different place. When we first receive Zazen instruction, uh, that often begins with talking about what? Sitting, breathing, uh, this is not wrong. Usually body posture. Usually we talk about how to set up the physical body. And why that? Partly because if we imagine that Zazen has something to do with cultivating a certain kind of state of mind, okay, then maybe that's very well, but it's difficult to take hold of your mind and rearrange it. And even if you could do that, it's difficult to see whether you have arranged it in the correct way or not. If you're trying to make, I'm just making up words here, but if you're trying to make a triangle out of your mind, how do you know you've gotten there, right? So we arrange the body in a certain way, which makes it more likely that the mind will tend in the direction of a certain state of mind or a certain quality of mind. And since this is all more fun interactive, you can try these things right now. Like if I sit, uh, if I sit in this way, this is one kind of feeling. If I sit in this way, this is a different kind of feeling. Right? So we start from one way of looking at things. We start our Zazen practice by addressing the body posture because it is more straightforward and observable uh, to manipulate the body than the mind. Right? And then as we begin Zazen, in a way, things turn around and the body posture becomes an expression or a manifestation of the quality of mind. So some of you are well aware of how this can crop up. Uh, many of you know the cosmic mudra. Some of you sit with this mudra, right? This is often regarded as a kind of barometer of the quality of your mind during sitting, right? If you're getting drowsy or mentally lax, the hands start to drift apart until you're completely asleep and the hands aren't even touching anymore. On the other hand, if your mind becomes tense and your body follows it, then you start to feel the thumbs pressing into each other and tenting up. And so this mudra symbolizes the sort of harmonious stability of a meditative mind, but it also shows you to some degree what's going on in there, right? And the same is true of the rest of your body as well. You know, one of the reasons that our, our school sits with the eyes partway open is that that is a, an observable manifestation of the fact that you are basically awake in, in the most basic sense, oh, not asleep, right? And you can also see 
as people's state of mind changes through the sit, how it manifests in their body. So in sort of a simple, obvious way, I'm just trying to make the point, what we think of as the mind and what we think of as the body are, to understate it, deeply linked, right? They affect each other. So this is, if there is a thesis of this talk, the external, the so-called external, is both an influencer of and a manifestation of the so-called internal, the, this, the mind. But for Zen people, this immediately raises the, the questions, where is the internal? What is the internal? Can you point that out? Can you, can you grab that and put it on a plate? You know, what is the mind? Can you show it to me? Or maybe is it not in fact the case that we are showing each other our minds all the time? So on one side of the dynamic, our, our so-called external environments become manifestations of our mind, right? What, what we do physically in the world shows off to some degree how our minds are in that moment. This makes me think when I, years ago, when I was working as a small vegetable farm manager, you know, there was a community of peers where several farms in the region, sort of the managers knew each other and we would visit each other's farms sometimes. And it was kind of widely held belief amongst these folks that each farm was to a high degree an expression of the personality of the farm manager. So you go onto the farm and you would see, is this farm well organized or is this farm disorganized? Is this farm focus on a particular aesthetic or does this farm not care about aesthetics at all? Does this farm survive because the farm manager is just uh, an exemplar of hard work and stamina and they work 16 hours every day? Or does this farm survive because things are optimized so that you can work uh, fewer hours and still get something done? And you could see through the way the farm was concretely a lot about the personality of the person who ran it, right? On that same tone, consider the condition of the Zendo that you're sitting in right now. So look around at what is here, what you can see. Consider that none of the objects, none of the movable objects in this room got there by themselves, right? All the cushions, all the altar accessories, the scroll, the statuary, even the stuff hanging up on the wall that you have to reach with a ladder, all of that can be regarded as some kind of evidence of the mind of the person who put it there or the mind of the last person who handled it. Now, take this home in your imagination to your physical home or your work. Uh, or your effect on whoever it is that you interact with each day, or your online persona, right? In all of these different environments, whatever we do, like whatever, whatever the internal is, again, 
It's a little made up, but whatever it is, it shows and it leaves traces. It leaves evidence. It leaves a trail. And it's, I mean, it's worthwhile. Maybe you, maybe you already are thinking of specific examples where your state of mind has influenced someone else in your life. And it can be good or bad. I mean, really, it's never either, but it can be a moment where you are tense and stressed and so you snap at somebody that you don't mean to, you know? Or it can be a moment where you are particularly clear and someone around you is stressing out and you are able to hold down the ground for that person and give them some space to come back. And I would ask you, how far does the influence of your mind extend? Like, is there a limit? Is there a boundary to the outermost effects of the quality of your mind? We often chant, may we extend this mind over the whole universe. So for us Zen people, again, we have to ask these questions. Can I really identify any accurate, any true boundary between what I label my mind and what I label the external world? And if I recognize that those two things like really interplay, affecting each other constantly, even if I stretch out to the ends of the earth, the ends of the galaxy, like where does that mind stop? Where does the influence of my mind end? And thinking about these things made me want to re-examine cleaning as a Zen practice. One of our most basic practices in formal Zen is cleaning things. Right? Uh, it's part of the aesthetic, obviously. And cleaning is such a foundational practice because cleaning something necessarily changes your perception of the object or the space that you're cleaning. As soon as you start trying to clean something like this, you learn more about it. You know, at the first pass, you dust the top of it and you're like, okay, it's clean. And then someone else comes back and they're like, well, what about this layer of it? And then someone else comes back and they're like, well, what about inside the scroll work? There's dust in there too. Did you bother to get in there? And if you want to really clean anything in Zen, you have to stretch your mind to notice more. You have to perceive more subtly what the thing is that's right in front of you. And that has an effect on the, on the so-called internal. So then, you know, basic Zen cleaning questions. Did you clean the corners? Did you get all the way? Were you thorough? Did you see all the dirt? Did you leave traces? Did you clean the incense burner, but then splash ash on the floor when you left? You know, that's not exactly good cleaning. So then I'd like to look from the other angle. So I've spent some time talking about how our minds manifest or express in the external world. But what about the reverse? What about the fact that the external world influences the mind, right? So have you ever 
stepped through the doors of a classical Gothic cathedral and you step into that huge space with the vaulted ceilings, how do you feel? How does that space hit your mind when you first walk in? When I, when I used to be the Jisha at DBZ, uh, I would be the one who gave tours to visitors who would show up unannounced. And so we usually start at the Genkan, at the formal entrance on that end of the monastery. And I would show them the Genkan and we would walk through and peek in the office and we would peek in the dining room. And I would show them the Dokusan room and explain to them what we did in there. And then we would walk down the long second floor hallway toward the Dharma Hall come into the Dharma Hall and I would explain that we bowed at the entrance to the Dharma Hall and this is where we did our chanting services. And then we turn and we go into the Zendo foyer. And I remember so many times seeing people's physical reaction when they turned right and saw the Zendo for the first time. You see this big room set for 40, which is just clean and empty. And people would stop. And they would know without anything being said that this was a space where you were supposed to be quiet and attentive. And suddenly they would be much more conscious of what they were doing just because of the space. So if you ask me, you can see how in that experience, in the experience of someone turning and seeing the, the DBZ Zendo for the first time, you witness this wordless transmission from mind to mind. You witness this, uh, this passage of some, some spark of spirit from the last person who set up that Zendo to this person who's seeing it for the first time. And these, these people have probably never met and maybe won't. So then, I, I would ask you to consider that, that this transmission, this striking of one mind into the next mind, in fact happens with every action we do. It, ha it in fact happens every moment of our lives. Everything we do, don't do, every body posture, every facial expression, this impacts someone else, this impacts something else. And so in, in Zen practice, we work deliberately on beautifying this transmission of mind that goes beyond words and scriptures, as Bodhidharma said. And a temple like this one can be thought of as a kind of gymnasium uh, where we practice this, where we, we sharpen our skills and our sensitivity, our perceptivity, as regards the act of passing from mind to mind, the act of minds touching in this way. So here in the gym, we, we use specific ritual objects. We use incense burners, we use the statues, the candles, uh, the cushions as, you know, sort of like the, the weights in the Zen gym. Um, and those are, those are our practice tools, but this is just practice, right? The, we use this conducive environment to sharpen our skills, to strengthen our abilities. Um, but the performance is happening all the time. 
whether we want it to or not. There's, there's no question about wanting it to or not. That doesn't matter. It's happening all the time. And so each, each little moment matters to some degree. And, of course, the world is not comprised only of incense burners and oil lamps and sabotons. Uh, so when you walk out the door onto the sidewalk, you may encounter an immense variety of situations and knowing how to arrange the zendo cushions is not directly going to give you a set answer to how to respond to what happens out there. I think we all understand that. But I hope that as you are here and as you are there, the work that we do here, the practice that we do together will aid you somewhat that the the sensitivity that we cultivate here will help you to be more intuitively perceptive about what you're encountering in all the moments of your life you will be able more readily to perceive the subtle distinctions between one situation and another one other person's state of mind and another the nuances in how the whole rest of the world presents itself to you. So I hope that you will be more prepared to feel your way through the infinite complexity of your life. And also that you will be more able to feel how the different possible reactions that you might make might land in a given situation. And we do our best and sometimes it works out great and sometimes not. And we come back here where the environment is more controlled, where there are fewer factors to work with. Uh, and we try again. And I wanted to put out one last note before we run out of time for this. This is also part of the reason that we do the different officer roles, right? Each officer has these specific activities they have to perform, uh, a specific sequence of bells that has to be run at, rung at a particular time, or the Han has a particular pattern with dynamics of loud and soft. And you have to learn how to do it in the right way. And then having to step up and, and perform those roles gives us another piece of practice to work with. Like that, ringing that gong, playing that bell, that has to be a manifestation of your mind. And since there is a form, there is a standard. And so you have this kind of measuring stick to assess, you know, was my quality of mind appropriate in that moment? And I think having that form is very important because if we didn't have any form, if we didn't have any standard for any of this stuff, it would be very difficult to know whether we're sort of hitting the mark on a given day, if that makes any sense. So in some, in some regard, yes, the form is arbitrary and it doesn't have the intrinsic meaning, maybe, but it has this utility. It has this uh, efficacy for working on this 
constant interchange of internal, external, of self, other, of mind, environment. I didn't say this at the top, but I meant to. This is just my arbitrary idea, but I will share it with you for the sake of transparency. As we do these talks, I'm imagining that they will occur with relatively little fanfare and ritual so that we can fit them into our Sunday schedule without extending things. And also, they will be a little shorter than the formal talks during session. I'm imagining these will be like 20 or 30 minutes so that we still have time for Zazen. And as we go into the Zazen, we will get to see whether or not uh, our minds become a little bit more blurry melded with what we might have thought of as not our minds. Thank you for being here. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.